Thank you, Tracy. And I want to uh, just, uh, as we start this morning, to um, just to tell you how thankful I am for the elders of this church and uh, their hearts for you. And you know, when you spend uh, six or eight hours of your weekend in prayer um, for a people, it it grows our hearts. It knits our hearts more closely with yours, and uh, you, you have elders among you who love you uh, and care about you deeply, and um, care about you so deeply that we are convinced and convicted that it is our job to, to promote and to read and to preach and to teach the Word of God, because it's only in the Word of God where we truly find hope as Tracy was praying earlier, or just a moment ago, and as we were singing earlier, you know, partly my job this morning as we're going through the book of Romans, we'll be in Romans chapter 8, but partly my job this morning is, is simply to put the foundation under the songs we were singing, the biblical foundation. It was there as we were singing. Uh, and, and so that is just, I've got an easy task, is to put that foundation there and to uphold that uh, to you. Now, I do want to say, next week, um, this week we're going to look at verse 31, Um, next week we're going to look at verse 31 and 32, Uh, and tentatively right now, um, what I want to talk about next week is is just a question, and this is the question, is God really for me? Um, we'll, We'll touch on that some this week, but I just want to I just want you to know that that's kind of where we're going next week because I don't want you to walk away from this sermon this morning um, saying, you know, Lewis, I'm in a state right now of turmoil. Uh, I'm in a state of pain and panic and these sort of things. Um, and, and you didn't address that sometimes it doesn't feel like God is for me. And so we'll, we'll talk about that a little more next week. We'll touch on it this week, but talk about that a little more next week. So... If you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8, I just want to briefly talk about where we've been and then jump into this morning's text. Um, And if you've been with us, we've been in this section, uh, verses 28 through 30, uh, really for for three or four weeks. And, And what we've seen is just this wonderful thing that has happened as we have built and and built on this foundation of Romans chapter 8 and gotten to these great promises, these great promises of hope uh, in verse 28 uh, that we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And I know this is taking root because I heard a discussion over the bagels this morning of uh, some of you were asking uh, which bagel they were predestined to take. And so I hope we got that figured out. Uh, as we move forward, but um, no, you know, the, the foundation and what we're really leaning on here is this whole idea that God is working all things together for the good for his children, for those whom he has set his covenantal love upon, that God is working for us in all things. And the thing that he is working for us for our good is that he is not might be, He is, if you are one of His children, He is conforming you to the image of His Son. And ultimately, ultimately, one day in heaven, that you will be glorified. And this is the good that Paul is talking about. And this is where we are, we've been working 
uh, in in the text. And Gary uh, took a couple weeks and talked about sanctification. And sanctification is the process by which we are becoming more like Jesus, more holy like Jesus. And uh, it's a process, and, uh, and, and we saw that God is working in us, and we are working out what God is working in us. Now, this is just a great and wonderful text, great and wonderful promises. And what Paul does next, starting in verse 31, is he gives us a series of, of questions, of rhetorical questions that he's asking that he expects his reader to know the answer to. So this isn't one of those uh, tricky pop quizzes. If we've been reading this letter, we should know the answers to these questions. And so my goal this morning, my goal this morning is to talk about three things from the text and then to really end with giving us a challenge as a church. Uh, and so, so let's jump into the text, and I just want you to know three things. And these are three really easy things, not complicated, but I want to make sure that we're all thinking um, the same way as we read this text, that we're thinking biblically about this text. And so the first thing I want you to see as we look at this verse, what shall we say about these things? I want us to define a little bit what these things are. Is that right, grammar? Wit? Okay, good. I want us to define what these things are. Really what Paul is doing here in this statement, this is a summary statement, as you can see. What shall we say about these things? And if you were to read commentaries and sermons and these sort of things, you'll get a variety of answers. Um, One group of folks would say, hey, when he's talking about these things... He's really talking about all from um, about midway through chapter 1 to the current place in Romans chapter 8. Some would say, no, I, I think what Paul is really doing here is he's taking from about Romans chapter 5, where he first mentions uh, love, the love of God, and it's a summary of this section. And others would say, no, 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 it's this immediate context of Romans chapter Eight, and particularly verses 28 through 30. And what I want to say is if you read all of these things, the answer to all of this would be, yeah. He's talking about all of that. <laughs> what Paul is saying is Paul is, is, is coming to this apex of his argument. As, as you know, if you've been with us for a number of years, what we have seen in this text is that Paul is laying out in the book of Romans the gospel. And as he's laying out the gospel, and if you remember from the very beginning of our study on the book of Romans, uh, we, we talked about what gospel is it? Is it the gospel of God? Is it the gospel of Jesus? Is it the gospel of Paul? Is it our gospel? And the answer to that was yes. But Paul is laying this thought out about this gospel, this great gospel in which God looks upon us in pure mercy, based off nothing that we've done, and He ransoms us for Himself, and He makes he adopts us as His children, and then He doesn't leave us there, but He's, he's working in us our sanctification to conform us to the image of His Son. And, and you can even see, you know, one of the things that's neat, uh, and Romans 8 is really kind of all about this, and if you look at verse 1 and then the last verse in Romans chapter 8, I just think this is a neat... Um, Kind of summary. There is now there is therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit 
of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then look at verse 39. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's no condemnation and nothing can separate us from the love of God. What shall we say about these things? I hope you hear in this question just the amazement and the greatness of this. What can we say about these things? Are you amazed by your grace? By the grace, not your grace, the grace of God on your life? Are you are we overwhelmed very often about the fact that God loved me and gave his son to die for me? Does that not just blow you away at times? Are you amazed at the fact that not only did God save you, but he is continually working in your life to conform you to the image of his son? Even how much you and I, how much we blow it on a day-to-day basis that God doesn't leave us, He doesn't abandon us, that He's continually working in us. Are you amazed at that? I sure am. So when we look at these things, these things, it is a massive foundational truth. The gospel message, and it's what we're building upon. And these things refers ultimately to the work of God. And ultimately, ultimately, when we step back and look at this, and he says this in the second part of this question, what, about, what do we say about these things? God is for us. If we just said it positively, what can we say about this? That God is for us. It should just absolutely blow our mind. The second thing I want to do after talking about these things is just take just a brief moment. And I think it's very important, again, that we hone in and that we're very biblical and we've got the right hats and lenses, hats on for thinking and lenses through which to see this. I think it's very helpful to talk about who is this God that we're talking about and, and, and what is the us here in this text. And so, the, so I want you to see who the God of these things is. And I don't think that we can think enough about who God is. In fact, I want to say that if, if you are in here this morning and you are struggling, maybe you're depressed, maybe you're anxious, maybe there's relationship issues, some of these things that Tracy was praying for us, I think it's a healthy exercise to think through who is this God that this text says is for us. He is not an impersonal force. He's not some distant power that kind of sends some kind of beams of happiness to the earth or punishment every once in a while. He's not this magic uh, or this distant clockmaker who winds up the clock of the universe and then lets it go and backs off and lets it do its own thing, spin uh, how it may and land where it may. That is not the God that we serve. The God of the Bible is the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, personal God of the universe. That He knows His children by name. He knows the hairs on your head. Not only that, but He created all things and He upholds all things. 
Nothing that was made exists without Him. This God, this God is for you. And I thought of a really dumb example that I'll share with you. When I was in middle school, we won every football game we played. And uh, I can sit up here and tell you how good we were and how good I was, but in reality, we were good for one reason. And you know what that reason was? You don't know that reason because you weren't on my team. Andre. Andre was good. Every time Andre touched the ball, he scored. Every kickoff, every punt return. Um, and so, with Andre on your team, you are going to be victorious. You are not going to lose with Andre on your team. And you know, Andre didn't play in high school, and we went one and nine, one and nine, one and nine, one and nine. When Andre was not for us, <laughs> we did not perform very well on the field. And this is a, a little bit of a silly example. But, but I'm wanting to kind of bring it around to, to, to where we are and, and to bring in the reality of what, what the text is saying. The God of the universe, the God of the universe is for you. All that Andre could do is influence the outcome of the game. The God of the universe owns the game. And He is for you. Does this blow your mind? Does this bring you comfort this morning? Does this send you to a place where you just want to re-sing all the songs that we sung earlier? If you are down and out and in a state of weariness this morning, does this make you want to get up and encourage you and give you the ability to stand up and to limp forward? Because you know that the God of the universe is for you. Now, in the Old Testament, and uh, I was going to read some passages, but as, as, as God would have it, John read some just great passages this morning. And so I'm not going to re-go through all those. But in the Old Testament, when the wording is used that God was with them or God was for them, what happened? They won. Every single time. So when we get to this language in the New Testament where Paul is saying that God is for you, what he's saying is that not that you have a good chance. He is saying the God of the universe is for you. You win. And this is where our comfort and our hope is found. The other thing that I want us to see in this is, is who is the us and um, there's really two reasons why I want to define this, and, and I always want to protect us um, against error. Um, and, and I want to real briefly say, again, you know, next week, uh, we're the sermon is going to be revolved around, is God really for me? Um, so, so right here, what I'm really interested in, what I'm really interested in, is protecting us from this error that I hear in our culture, um, that's even hard to use language to wrap language around. But so, so when Paul here says that God is for us, the us he is talking about is a limited group of people. Now, I want to be careful. Let's use John 3.16 for a moment. We can see what, what we're talking about. Right? John 3.16. For God so loved the what? 
world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so even in this verse, we see that God, he loves the world. But the ones who will not perish are the whoever, the whoever who believes in him. And we see from this passage, we see from this passage, if we were to go up to Romans 8, 28 and 29 and 30 again and walk through this, that there are a those in this passage. And I think the best place to, to look is Romans 10, 9. And you know this verse as well. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. And so the us in here are the children of God, those who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus as their Redeemer, that these are the ones whom this almighty, sovereign God is for. And there are no tricks. There are no tricks. If you love Jesus and you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, if you love Jesus, then He is for you. He is for you. And can you amen that this morning? Because this is a big, big deal. Now, I want to give a side note real quick and then jump into the third point. If you are in the midst of trials, temptations, hardships, and sufferings, you need to live in this section of Romans 8. You just need to live here. You need to read it. You need to memorize it. You need to soak in it. You need to sing it like we did this morning. You need to buy coffee cups with it on there. Or you can stencil it in your house. <laughs> Gary's house, they have Romans 8.28 stenciled there, and I love that. To remind yourself of this, of this that you need this this morning. The second thing that I want you to know, just in this, in this little section, is this. Is that when we talk about God and His love for His people and in this way, the result in our hearts as the part of the us is humility. And, and the two words that I think should go together, and I think go together in this text, and we're going to see it in Romans 9, is worship and weeping. That if you are one of the us in this text, we worship because of what God has done and we're amazed at what God has done in our lives and we weep that there are those who might perish. And this is the battle, this is the, this is the, the lot of the Christian life in this world that we're always worshiping and we're always weeping. End of parentheses. <laughs> third thing that I want you to see. The third thing that I want you to briefly see here. So what shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As John said this morning, and we had not talked about the sermon, he could have just preached the sermon. We could have ended with the last song and sat down. This does not mean that there is no opposition to the Christian faith. That's not what Paul is saying here. Any church or preacher or TV show or book that tells you that being a good Christian means that there's no opposition to your faith, there's no hardships in the Christian life, run. 
because they're teaching you false doctrines. It's just not true. You can't read the Bible and come up with that conclusion. Paul, later on in this text, says, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In verse 35, he lists a whole bunch of hardships, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword. And I want to talk just about a couple of real-life examples. Consider Job. At the beginning of the book of Job, what does God tell us about Job? Job was the what? He was the most righteous man living. And because of that, then, he just lives this carefree, easy life, and nothing bad happens to him, right? No. Satan, and we don't know how this works, Satan comes to God and says, Hey, what about Job? And God says, do what you will, just don't kill him. And so what we see happen to Job, and many of us are familiar with this story, is he lost everything. Wife, kids, land, money. He became sick himself. The friends he did have left did not give him very helpful advice. In fact, they gave him the wrong advice. And I want you to see, I want you to see the outworking of this text that we're talking about in the Old Testament, maybe the first book of of the Bible written, the book of Job. And you don't have to turn there. You can just listen. In chapter 42, verses 1 through 5, listen to what Job says. Listen to what Job says about his loss here. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I love this verse. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Another way to render this is, I have heard rumors of you, but now I see you. And to Job, to Job, that glimpse of who God is, meant everything to him. It put the tribulations and the distress and the heartache and the headache and the financial burden, it put all of that into a perspective where Job was saying, it is worth it. It has taught me well. It is making me holy. Let me give you another example of opposition to Christians. The cross of Christ. There may be no greater example of opposition to a Christian than the very betrayal, death, persecution of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. He was wrongfully convicted. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was cursed. He was spit upon. They plucked his beard out. They killed him like a criminal. They hung him up naked on a cross so that he could be publicly shamed. And he died the death of some of the worst criminals in history. But yet, but yet, the cross of Christ, God's work in the cross of Christ was to make a way for your and my sins to be pardoned. This opposition did not stand Against Jesus. And lastly, just think about the apostles and and some of our early church fathers. 
Everything seemed to be against these folks. I don't know if you've done any reading about some of the, uh, how the apostles' life ended and some of the early Christian fathers, what their lives were like, but everything seemed to be against these folks. There wasn't a government that gave rights that protected them. Many times they had no political standing. Uh, the, the, the religious majority were persecuting them. They were impoverished. They were hunted, they were criminalized, they were beaten, they were burned, they were banished. And yet, we are here, we are here because of the blood of the martyrs. God was at work, God's plan, God's purpose of building a church and building a bride for Himself. Overcame the opposition. So what I want you to see is that this promise does not mean that there will be no adversaries, but this promise does mean that there are no victorious adversaries. I like what Matthew Henry has said about this. And make no note uh, about it. Our greatest enemy, our, the greatest opposition we have is the devil. And Matthew Henry says this. Be they ever so great and strong, ever so many, ever so might, ever so malicious, what can they do? While God is for us, and we keep in His love, we may with a holy boldness defy all the powers of darkness. Let Satan do his worst, he is chained. Let the world do its worst, it is conquered. Principalities and powers are spoiled and disarmed and triumphed over in the cross of Christ. Who then dares to fight against us? While God Himself is fighting for us. And this we say to these things. This is the inference we draw from these premises. Brother and sister, do you believe this this morning? That your adversary, the devil, is chained. He's chained like a dog and will not be victorious in your life cross of Christ has overcome the work and the power of the devil. Now I want to talk about some implications for us. Um, and there's two ways that I want to go with this. And the first way is, is uh, it, it was interesting because um, a little bit of this talk came up at the elders retreat. Um, but I had uh, earlier this past week had as I was reading this text and preparing, one of the things that I feel like was put on my heart is that these, 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 this text, this teaching, this preaching is vital for us for so many reasons. But one reason is this. I am convinced, Lord willing, in my 30 plus year tenure at this church, and if you're new, I'm, I, I'm not maybe old enough to have been here for 30 years. I've only been here for three in something, and so I am, uh, my vision is a lifelong ministry here, and, and, and my assumption during my lifetime here, things are going to look a lot different for us. When you look at culture, when you look at the way that culture is going, and the direction, even in the past four to five years, what has happened in our culture... I think we're going to come, if, if we continue to stand, as long as I'm here and faithful, we're going to stand on God's Word. If we continue to stand on God's Word, we are going to come under increased opposition. 
It is a foregone conclusion in my mind at some point, and this is the least of the opposition, it is a foregone conclusion in my mind at some point we will lose our tax-exempt status as a church. And it's almost a foregone conclusion in my mind that at some point things that would even just be read from this pulpit that came from the Bible is going to be labeled hate speech at some point in our lifetime. And so it's vital, it's vital as a church when we come across a text like this that this text gets into the backbone of who we are and we know that if God is for us, who can be against us? Because this gives us something to fall back on when we may want to, uh, when we may want to cower, when fear kind of cripples in, when we may want to compromise on some things. We need to know that God is for us, and because God is for us, we will go along victorious. If there's five of us, we will stand on God's truth and proclaim God's truth and move forward. I also know that personally, um, over the course of the next 30 plus years, that God has me here, Lord willing, that there's going to be more suffering in this room. There's going to be more things that happen to you and to me and to my family. And it's, it's in these difficult times we need to draw back upon the truths of God's Scripture where we can maybe through tears with one another while we're embracing, remind one another, I know it's hard but God is for you. He is working. These circumstances are not pointless. The suffering in your life is not haphazard. That God is doing something in your life. He's conforming you to the image of His Son. Keep going. Because what these verses are designed to do, these verses are designed to give the believer confidence. When we read these verses, when we understand these promises that are here in the latter end of Romans chapter 8, they're designed to give us confidence. And, um, and I wanted to end with uh, something that hopefully is memorable, but is, is a little silly. And I want to just ask forgiveness um, for this. But, do any of you remember the movie Star Trek? Not the movie, sorry. TV show. Yes. You remember what the catchphrase was? To boldly go where no one has gone before. These verses give us that kind of confidence. Not to board a spaceship and go. That may be in some of your future. I don't know what 30 years will hold. What I do know is this. Some of you, maybe even right now this morning, God may be calling you out of the comforts of Signal Mountain or Chattanooga or wherever, and He may be calling you to go boldly to a context where your life may be in danger. 
or to a context somewhere in the world where things may be tough. God may be doing that right now in your heart and in your life. This is the confidence. This is the confidence. If, if, you, you know, if one of you came and said, hey, I think I'm going to be a missionary to North Korea, and one of your parents came and said, you know, how dare you give that message? And, you know, they could get killed. And I would say, hey, if God is for them, who can be against them? They may die. But they will live forever. For some of you, there may be context locally that God is calling you to step into something and there's fear and there's trepidation. And what I want to say is this text gives us the backbone to say, go boldly. God is for you. You can step into that context boldly because God is for you. And lastly, and this is the one that is for all of us, and that is is that these verses, this Scripture gives us the backbone, gives us the context, gives us the confidence to be able to say, boldly go as you go. Meaning that we all have a task and a job to do. And we are to do that boldly with confidence because God is for us. And let me give you an example of what I mean by this. One of the things I'm convicted of uh, as an elder is that we need less programs. And as one pastor I heard this week say, you are the program. This has been our evangelism strategy. You, (laughs) go. Go. As you go, take Christ with you. I would also say, we don't necessarily need more programs for hurting people within our congregation. What we need is for you to boldly enter somebody's life, enter somebody's suffering. And I, man, we hear of this all over the place, and I'm so thankful of this. So I don't want to act like this doesn't happen. It happens. I just want to encourage you to do more and to do it boldly, to involve yourself in people's lives, boldly. Because God is with you. God is for you. And you have that message to take to them. To enter each other's lives. To love one another. To encourage one another. To pray for one another. To point each other to Christ. And you don't have to wait. You don't have to muster up the confidence. You just have to believe in the God who tells you He's with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we stand amazed as we open up this text and we hear these words that you, the God of the universe, is with us and that you are for us. And we know that the answer to the question that if you are for us, who is against us? And there is no one. There is no one who stands against your church. God, help us to grow in this confidence. Help us to grow in this confidence as a a body of believers so that we will look to do radical things for the purposes of spreading your great name amongst the nations and amongst our city. Help us individually to have this confidence 
that you are for us and so no one can stand against us. And God, I pray that you would just use this to, to build confidence into the lives of the individuals hearing this message this morning so that as we go from here and as we go throughout our week that we will boldly enter situations and people's lives <coughs> for the sake of encouragement, for the sake of witnessing, for the sake of calling to repentance, for the sake of calling a sinner to call upon you. God, I pray that you will give us confidence and boldness. And God, we know that as we do this, that it's all in love. And it's all with humility. And it's all with grace. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your word that testifies to us about who your son is, who died on the cross for us, in whose name we pray. Amen.